0: Om Namo Bhagavate Sri arana chala ramanaya. Uh, namaskaram. <clears throat> Today I'm again going to answer some questions that have been asked in the, um, in various comments in uh, on my uh, on the YouTube channel. <clears throat> and um, again, I've selected questions that are to do with the practice of self investigation because this is the this is the heart of Bhagavan's teaching. This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. <clears throat> um, so the, the first set of questions that I, I'm going to answer now, are: uh, uh, someone wrote a comment saying, asking, uh, when we investigate ourselves, I assume that we do so in silence. If so, what is the nature of the investigative process if there is no inner dialogue? how is our self understanding deepening or is it simply by growing more uh, by growing more familiar with the sensation of inwardness peace or is it a feeling of melting into love how are we supposed to implement the investigation to just say that we should investigate who we are is a little ambiguous surely there are clues that might indicate to us that the investigation is proceeding in accordance with Bhagavan's advice. Uh, so that is the question I was asked, a set of questions I was asked. Um, firstly, uh, the first question is, when we investigate ourselves, I assume we do so in silence. Yes, certainly we do so in silence. But what Bhagavan, when Bhagavan talks about silence, what he means by silence is not just vocal silence, nor is it mental silence. It is the eternal silence of pure being, the silence that is our own real nature, the silence that is not disturbed by any amount of noise or mental activity. So that silence is our real nature. And that is the silence of just being as we actually are. Um, So, yes, the... We can invent, since silence is our real nature, we can investigate ourselves only in silence. But what is meant by silence? Silence means so long as we allow our attention to go out towards anything other than ourselves, towards any thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, sounds, tastes, tactile sensations, whatever, any phenomena if we allow our attention to go towards any phenomena, that is a mental activity. So that is not silence. Silence is the state in which we as ego subside. And the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So in order to... Be in the silent or to be as the silent that is our own real nature, we need to turn our attention within and thereby subside back into our own being. Then, the second question was if so, what is the nature of the investigative process if there is no inner dialogue? Inner dialogue means mental activity no mental activity can enable us to know what we actually are because what we actually are is pure being it's not doing it's just being so we can investigate ourselves only by being not by doing anything but in order to be we need to t- so long as we are allowing our attention to go away from ourselves towards any object or phenomena that is a mental activity so that is not um that, that is not um, being as we actually are. In order to be as we actually are, we need to turn our attention back towards ourself alone and thereby subside back into our own being. <clears throat> what, uh, the, the question is, what is the nature of the investigative process? Bhagavan has very clearly defined what he means by Vichara or self-investigation, in the 16th paragraph of Nana. What he says there is, sadakalamum manate atmavil ve tiruputkutan What that means is the name atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind on atman, uh, oneself. Keeping the mind on oneself means keeping our attention on ourselves. So if what Bhagavan means we can investigate what we are only by attending to ourselves. If we want to investigate anything, the basic tool of any investigation is attention. But when we are investigating anything other than ourselves, in addition to our attention, we need um we need other instruments, for example, if we're investigating anything in the external world. We, our attention has to go out through our senses, so senses are required. If we are a astrophysicist uh, uh, investigating far away, distant phenomena in the universe, we need very powerful telescopes. If we're a, a, a nuclear scientist or a quantum physicist, we need instruments to see to observe very minute things. But whatever instruments, any scientist or doctor or um, policeman or anyone who's doing any investigation, whatever other instruments or means they use, the basic instrument is attention or observation. In the case of of investigating ourselves, no instrument other than attention is necessary. In fact, any other instrument it would be directing our attention away from ourselves. So all we need to do is to be self-attentive, to attend to our own being, to our fundamental awareness, I am. That is what Bhagavan means by self-investigation. That's why he says the name Satyam or self-investigation, refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. I mean, on oneself means on what we actually are. That's on our our own fundamental awareness. I am not on this body or mind or anything else that we mistake now, currently mistake ourselves to be, but on what we actually are, namely our own being, I am. Um, And then the, the next question is, how is our self understanding deepening? I think understanding is not quite the right word here. Of course, we need to have understanding in order to understand what it is we are to investigate. But what we are seeking is not a mere understanding, but it is a a clarity of self-awareness. We are always aware of our own existence, but instead of being, so in other words, we're always aware I am. Now, instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person, I am um, Michael or whoever. We all have a, that is whatever it be the name of a person we take ourselves to be, we identify with the name and form of that person. That is not what we actually are. So, we, we in order to to remove this wrong awareness of ourselves, this erroneous awareness of ourselves, we need to be clearly aware of ourselves as we actually are. So, what we are seeking is not so much understanding as clarity, clarity of self awareness. And um, we gain that clarity simply by attending to ourselves. The more we attend to ourselves, the more we become aware of, clearly aware of ourselves as something distinct from the body and mind that we now mistake ourselves to be. We become more and more clearly aware of ourselves as just pure being. I am. Um, And then the next question is, or is it simply by growing more familiar with the sensation of inwardness or peace? That is, any sensation is something that comes and goes. Even inwardness is something that comes and goes. Peace comes and goes. What we are investigating is what is permanent. So it's not a sensation. It is the the clarity of self-awareness. I am. In other words, it's our own being. So we are not investigating anything that appears or disappears. So sometimes when Looking within, when investigating ourselves, sometimes we may experience peace or joy, or all the or all sorts of uh, things may be experienced. But whatever appears will also disappear. So it is not what we actually are. So what we are, we are not looking for any transitory peace. We are looking for the eternal peace that is our own real nature, the eternal peace that is our own being. So what we are to investigate is not anything that comes or goes. We're not looking for any special state. We are looking for that which is permanent, that that which exists, whatever, whatever the circumstances or, or state of mind may be. That is, whether our mind is calm and peaceful or disturbed and agitated, we are always aware I am. So it is that Awareness I am, but we need to hold on to. It's that awareness I am, but we need to investigate, because that is what we actually are. And the next question is, is it a feeling of melting into love? That is, in order to turn our attention within and to fix our attention on self alone, that requires all-consuming love, heart-melting love, because the nature of ego or mind is to be constantly flowing outwards, constantly trying to grasp things other than itself, because we as ego depend for our very existence as ego upon identifying ourselves with other things and holding on to other things. So, in order to uh, investigate ourselves, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves because, to the extent to which we turn our attention within, to that extent do we as ego subside and dissolve back into our source. So, until and unless we are willing to surrender ourselves, we will not be willing to go deep within. So, to the extent to which we have heart melting and all consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. To that extent, we will go within. So, love is absolutely essential in this part. This is why Bhagavan used to say, "Bhakti is the mother of Jnana." Bhakti means love; Jnana means knowledge in the sense of pure awareness. So, we can we can know ourselves as we actually are only by only to the extent to which we have all-consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. But love is not a mere feeling. Love is something much deeper than any feeling. Yes, love may sometimes be accompanied by feelings, but the mere feelings are not love. Love is something we can't adequately put it into words. That is just like we can't, what is it to be aware I am? We all know, we're all aware I am, but can we describe the awareness I am? We we can't word cannot capture it. Likewise with love, love is actually our own real nature. Love to know and to be what we actually are is our true nature, but that cannot be adequately expressed in words. But it is certainly something far more than a feeling. It may give rise to certain feelings, but the feelings themselves are not love. Feelings are things that come and go. Love is something enduring. Uh, because it's our own real nature ultimately. Um, and then the next question is how are we supposed to implement the investigation? And as I said, according to Bhagavan, what, what Bhagavan means by self investigation is self attentiveness. We need to attend to ourselves. So, whatever else we may be aware of, that the awareness of other things comes and goes. So to whom do other thing, these other things, or awareness of other things, to whom does it appear? It appears to us, so we need to turn our attention away from the objects, whatever is, appears, back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. In other words, we have to turn our attention away from all objects, back towards the subject, And objects, it means not only the objects of the external world, even the the thoughts and feelings and emotions and likes and dislikes and desires and attachments that constitute the mind. These are all objects. They're all things other than ourselves. So the subject is just I. So we need to turn our attention back to I. Um, How we do so, is something that we can learn only by practice. It, um, a simple analogy to express this is: if you want, if you've never ridden a bicycle in your life and you want to learn how to ride a bicycle, you cannot learn to ride a bicycle by reading books or by attending lectures or by any means other than getting on a bicycle and trying. That is from books and lectures, you may learn a little bit about the, the principles of balance and so on. But you cannot learn to balance from a lecture. You cannot learn to balance from a book. You, the only way to learn to balance is to try to balance, to get on a bicycle. And, of course, when you get on a bicycle, at first you'll wobble and fall and wobble and fall. But slowly, slowly you get the hang of it. Likewise with self-investigation. The words are only pointers. The words can give us a general idea of what we are trying to do. But but no words can adequately express what it is to be self-attentive. So the only way to learn to be self-attentive is to try to be self-attentive. And of course we'll we'll wobble and fall, wobble and fall, but slowly, slowly we get the hang of it. Slowly, slowly we become more aware more familiar with what it is to be aware of our own being alone, in isolation from everything else. So that's why the only way to succeed in this path is by patient and persistent practice. Um, And then the... uh, uh, the next sentence is, to, to just say that we should investigate who we are, is a little ambiguous. Yes, it may be ambiguous if it, if the person who is told to investigate if they don't understand what it means, it may be a little ambiguous. That is why Bhagavan has given us so much explanations, clarifications, clues, pointers, and so on but ultimately we can learn to investigate ourselves only by trying that all the all the clues and pointers and um clarifications explanations have be but can be given have been given by bhagavan but we need to implement those by trying to turn our attention within and then the next question is surely there are clues that might indicate to us that the investigation is proceeding in accordance with Bhagavan's advice." Yes, that is, firstly, we need to understand what Bhagavan's advice is. In other words, we need to to study Bhagavan's teachings carefully. And by Bhagavan's teachings, what I'm referring to primarily is his own original writings, because Though many people have recorded what Bhagavan said in answer to questions, often they didn't, they, they recorded what they understood, which was often not very deep or correct. So, for a deep and clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to go back to his own original words, in other words, his own writings. Or if we don't understand Tamil, in which he wrote his teachings, we should, we, we should um find reliable translations of them. So if we if we uh if we uh read reliable translations, if we either read the originals or reliable translations of Bhagavan's own writings and think very carefully about it, we will see that he has given us abundant clues and pointers to help us in, uh, follow this path, not only to help us understand what the practice is, but also to motivate us and, car- and encourage us to persevere in practicing this. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Then another set of questions I was asked was, um, ego is a formless phantom. It only comes into existence by grasping form. My question is, how can ego grasp itself when our attention is turned inwards, knowing that I is formless? Is this why ego is annihilated? Because it needs to grasp a form, but when attention is turned to the I, which is also formless, ego is not able to grasp it, and hence it is annihilated. Or is it when all adjuncts drop, uh, all that remains is I, and ego is no more? I think I answered my question. Uh, yes, I think this person has answered their question. That is, but some clarification is 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 useful here. That is, yes, the nature of ego, ego cannot rise, stand or flourish without grasping form. Form here means any object or phenomena. phenomenon. Anything that can be distinguished from any other thing is a form. So forms don't only mean the physical forms of the world. All the mental forms, the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on, these are all forms of one kind or another. So all objects, all phenomena, are forms. But ego is not an object, ego is the subject. Though ego identifies itself with a set of, fo- uh, set of objects, namely, uh, 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 a body consisting of five sheaths, that's a physical form of the body, the life that animates it, the mind, the intellect and will that operate in it. These make up the body that we take ourselves to be or the person we take ourselves to be. As as ego, we always identify ourselves with such a set of objects, but ego itself is not an object. Ego is the subject. So the subject has no form. Um, so Bhagavan describes ego as a formless phantom. But though ego has no form, ego always always knows itself as I. So there is never a moment when we are not aware of ourselves as I. So though I is not a form, we we can grasp I, but since I is formless, By grasping I, by grasping ourself, we as ego subside, because in order, because as ego we cannot rise, stand, or flourish. Stand here means endure or flourish without grasping form. When instead of grasping form, we try to grasp ourself alone, we thereby subside. So, as Bhagavan (laughs) made clear particularly in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, but in so many other places, the nature of ego is is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself, in other words, grasping form, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by grasping itself. So because Ego itself is formless. When it tries to grasp itself, it's not grasping a form. It's grasping just the fundamental awareness I am. And thereby, it ceases to be ego. It subsides and it dissolves back into its source. And so to the extent to which we hold on to our being, all adjuncts drop off because adjuncts are all forms. The adjuncts means the, the, the bundle of adjuncts that we take to be ourself is, are these Five sheaves that make up the person or body that we seem to be, namely the physical form of the body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. These are what make up the, the body or the person that we now seem to be. These are all adjuncts. Adjunct means they're not, they are something other than ourselves. They are what we mistake ourselves to be, even though that is not what we actually are. So, to the extent to which we hold on to our being, these adjuncts will drop off, and thus ego will subside and dissolve back into its source. So there are different ways of explaining this, but it all ultimately comes to the same thing, that the more we hold on to ourself, the more everything else drops off, because other things do not actually um, hold on to us. That if this body and mind are not holding on to us, we are holding on to them and saying, I am this body, I am this mind, I am this person. So we are the one who grasp. So people sometimes say, oh, this, I, I'm, I'm bound by this body. No, the body or by the mind, the body or mind is not binding us. We are binding ourselves to the body and mind by uh, attending to them and identifying them as I. If we turn our attention within to try to hold on to our own being, we thereby withdraw our attention from all other things. In other words, we let go of all other things. Since we are no longer holding them, they automatically drop off. So everything will drop off to the extent to which we hold on to ourselves. To the extent to which we do not hold on to ourselves, we will be holding on to other things. And so we nourish and sustain both our semi-existence as ego and the semi-existence of all the other things that we hold on to. So I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Um, Shall we have any more questions come in
1: yet? The first question is, uh, is grace the loving counter to karma? Karma is jada and mechanistic. It seems love is directly the opposite of karma.
0: Love or grace is our own real nature. Karma is to do with with doing and experiencing. Experiencing means experiencing things other than ourselves. That is, we do actions in order to experience certain things. So. the actions we do are karma, and the result of those actions are called the fruit of karma, which are the experiences that come to us. These are all contrary to our real nature. Our real nature is, is not doing, but being. It's not knowing other things. It is knowing nothing other than ourselves, And that state of... of of being as we actually of knowing ourselves as we actually are, and thereby being as we actually are, that is the state of pure love. So, yes, in a sense we can say that grace or love is the opposite of karma. But even to say it's the opposite, it makes it sound like there are two things. On the one hand, we've got grace and love, on the other hand, we've got karma and the, the fruit of karma. It is not like that. The underlying reality is our own being, the very nature of which is infinite love. And that infinite love is what we experience as grace. So grace is our real nature, whereas karma is uh, is, is the nature of ego. That is, when we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a mind, speech, and body, and so the actions done by this mind, speech, and body are experienced by us as actions done by me. So doership is the very nature of ego. Not only doership, but the other side of doership is experiencership. Both doership and experiencership, both are the very nature of ego. So karma is part of our ego nature. Love or grace is our real nature. I hope this adequately answers that. So, if we want to free ourselves from karma, we must cling to to our own being, which is never touched by karma, even in the least. And in order to cling to our own being, we must have all consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. When we know what we actually are, then we would discover that infinite love is our own real nature. Why is infinite love our own real nature? Because it is natural for us all to love ourselves. Now we limit ourselves as a person. So we seem to be limiting our love to this person and to those who are close to this person, my family, my country, my religion, my this, my that, We, I, whatever we identify with, that we have love for. But when we shed all identification and know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that what we actually are is infinite being. So our, lo- our, our natural self-love will thereby shine without limit, as it always actually is.
1: The next question is, uh, in the description, Satchit Anand, it seems the Anand aspect is transitory and almost a prelude to the self.
0: No, uh, (laughs) that is... Obviously, sat is pure being, being, pure existence. So that is eternal. Likewise, awareness is eternal. But because sat and chit are not two different things, sat itself is chit and chit itself is sat, that is what actually exists is only awareness, pure awareness. And the very nature of pure awareness and pure being is pure happiness. Why happiness seems to us to be transitory, because we, have, we are not now experiencing ourselves as the infinite being that we actually are. We have limited our existence as the existence of this body. So we, we have seemingly limited our existence within the confines of time and space. Because if this body is myself, I exist here, I don't exist there. I exist now, I don't exist then. So we have, we have limited ourselves within the confines of time and space. Ananda may appear to be transitory from the perspective of ego, because we have limited our existence to the existence of this body. We've limited our awareness within the confines of this body. Likewise, we've limited our happiness so happiness is something that seems to sometimes we seem to be more happy sometimes we seem to be less happy that is uh, because of a limitation the opposite of happiness arises which is unhappiness so we seem to be fluctuating between varying degrees of happiness and unhappiness but this is not this this fluctuating happiness is not our real nature our real nature is infinite unalloyed happiness, happiness for which there is no opposite. So uh, uh, Sat, pure being, is Chit, pure awareness, and that itself is pure happiness. So the reason we are not now experiencing ourselves as infinite happiness is that we are not experiencing ourselves as the infinite such it that we actually are, because that such it is itself happiness. So when though the term such ananda seems to be referring to three things, existence, awareness, and happiness, these are not actually three things. Existence is itself awareness, it itself is happiness. Uh, awareness is itself existence and is itself happiness. And happiness itself is existence and awareness. So these are not three things, they are three ways of describing one and the same thing. Because Satchidananda is also described as ekam eva advatiam, one only without a second. So Ananda is not a second thing. Chit is not a second thing. Sat is not a second thing. They are all one thing and one thing only. And that is what we actually are. I hope that adequately answers that question.
1: The next question is there are moments of being one with real nature, but this form, it seems, I am following around. I am wherever it goes can you explain this perhaps debbie could clarify this
2: okay, okay. yes i can hi hi <laughs> so i have moments where i i'm able to go fully inside but it and but then um and i feel um not part of this form but then the form i i'm always wherever it is so and maybe this is the Mayan coming in, but I'm just wondering about that. Because, you know, I guess that's the question. I don't okay. have a better Okay,
0: answer. Okay, I, I, I think I understand now. Firstly, we can't have moments of being one with our real nature. Because our real nature is infinite and eternal. So anything that is momentary is a state of ego. That is, I think what you're describing as states of uh, of oneness with your real nature. These may be states in which ego subsides, at least partially. So you feel less separation. You feel more oneness. But in the state of true oneness, there is nothing other than one. There's nothing other than the one. There's no past, no, no future. There's no... No change of any sort whatsoever, so these whatever experiences we 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 as ego experience they are by their very nature they are transitory, so they are not the perfect they they are not what we actually are because what we actually are is eternal unchanging immutable so in when we are following Bhagavan's path, we are not looking for any temporary experience. We are looking for that which is eternal. So long as we do not lose ourselves completely in the infinite being that we actually are, we we. We we, ha- we seem to be ego, and as ego, we always seem to be limited to a particular form. That is, ego is always aware of itself as I am this body. So we have limited ourselves within the confines of uh, this body, which I think is the form you're referring to. And body means, as Bhagavan clarified, it doesn't mean just the physical form of the body. Uh, the life, mind, intellect, and will are all part of his body. We experience the, the whole person as, as one whole. Though we can analyze and say this person consists of mind, uh, of, oh, sorry, of body, of the physical form of the body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. We can distinguish these things, but we experience them all collectively as ourselves. So this is the form within which we have now limited ourselves. So wherever we go, yes, this form seems to come with us because we have limited ourselves to this form. But actually, what we actually are is in no way limited at all. We are infinite and eternal being, infinite and eternal awareness, infinite and eternal love, infinite and eternal happiness. That is what we actually are. So, so yes, yeah, okay.
2: Is this um, not a process? This is uh, just a merging? So there's no pro- process. Meaning- it's a pro- it's
0: a process of merging. That is, we have now risen as ego, and to the extent to which we we allow our attention to go out towards things other than ourselves, we are feeding and nourishing our semi existence as ego. But to the extent to which we turn our attention within, this ego subsides. So this practice of self-investigation is a process of subsiding, of sinking deep within, of, and ultimately merging back into our source. So yes, it is a process until we reach the goal. In which in, When we reach the goal, ego is annihilated. And then we go beyond all processes we remain as we always actually are as the eternal being
2: so as a process, so when I'm talking to you, if I'm trying to you know be inside or not be focused on you or the speaking, I yes. still am yes. aware that I'm that that I can hear my like I'm speaking and you're speaking,
0: yes, 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 because. Okay. We haven't yet turned our attention within deeply enough. That is, to, to put it in metaphorical terms, our attention is now facing outwards towards the world, towards things other than ourselves, towards thoughts, feelings, emotions, and their uh, perceptions, and so on. Our aim now is to turn our attention 180 degrees away from all other things, back towards ourselves, So this practice of self-investigation is the process of turning our attention So, to the extent to which our attention is turned towards ourselves, to that extent do other things we draw into the background. If we turn the full 180 degrees, this is not literally, this is just a, a way of describing it. If we turn the full 180 degrees, then we have, so to speak, turned our back on everything else. Then we are aware of ourself alone, not of anything else. We're not aware of body or mind or any limitation whatsoever. But until we turn that full 180 degrees, we are still fluctuating between varying degrees of inwardness and outwardness. To the extent to which we turn inwards, the outward things recede into the background. To the extent to which we turn outwards, they all come back to the center again. And we seem to be bound within them.
2: So it's possible to turn inward and have a conversation with you and the conversation be in the background.
0: Yes, and yes. it's all a matter of degree of attention. Mm-hmm. That is, you couldn't be aware of this conversation. If, you, if part of your attention were not going outwards towards this conversation, So whatever activities we may be doing, we are always aware of our own existence so we can give at least part of our attention to our own being. So even in whatever activities we may be doing, whatever may be happening around us, we can hold on to at least a partial degree of self-attentiveness, but the deeper, the, the deeper and more intense that self-attentiveness, the more other things will recede into the background and we'll be un, un, untouched by them. But things will still go on as they're meant to go on in accordance with destiny or God's will or whatever we call it. Everything will continue. Our life will continue. But we, by turning within, we are detaching ourselves from this person. So this person will be made to do whatever actions are necessary in accordance with its destiny, in other words, in accordance with God's will. But we will be separating ourselves by going within.
2: Okay, so will will there be awareness of this person?
0: Um, or- Very awareness of this person will remain to the extent to which we allow our attention to go outwards because this person is outwards we are within so if if you turn the full 180 degrees then there'll be no awareness of anything other than your own being so so long as we continue to be aware of this body and world and all these appearances we haven't yet turned that full 180 degrees thank you So we have to go deeper and deeper and deeper within. We shouldn't stop until we lose ourselves completely in that infinite ocean of pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, that is called Satchitananda. But that is what we actually are. Thank you. When we lose ourselves in that, there's nothing other than that. But until then, we still, there still will be to a greater or lesser extent, an identification of ourself with this body, and consequently we'll be aware of all these other things. So it's all a matter of degree, but when we turn the the full 180 degrees, then the the game is over. The story's finished.
2: I'm assuming you see everything as yourself, basically. It's not it's
0: like everything just merges, you see yourself, okay, and nothing other than yourself, so you can say what 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 we are now seeing as everything is ourself, we are seeing ourself as all this when we see ourselves as all, as we actually are, we will see only ourself and not all of this. it is like the, the snake and rope, so long as you see the rope as a snake, you don't see it as it actually is. When you see it as a rope, you no longer see it as a snake. So you can metaphorically say, when you, see the, when you see it as a rope, you can say, ah, yes, now I see the snake as a rope. But are you actually seeing the snake? No, because you know it's a rope, you're not seeing the snake at all. It's only a a way of saying it. When you say, I now see the snake as a rope, that means what I formerly mistook to be a snake, I now see as just a rope. Because you can't see the rope and the snake at the same time. Either you see it as a a rope or you see it as a snake. So either we see ourselves as we actually are, one, infinite and indivisible, or we see ourselves as all this multiplicity. We can't see both at the same time. But when we see ourselves as we actually are, we can. it could be said but what we have, were formerly seeing as the world, we are now seeing as ourselves.
2: That was
1: very helpful. Thank you. Right. The next question is, what is the practical significance of the 15th paragraph of Nanyar in which Bhagavan says that God has no volition?
0: the practical significance that is that what what Bhagavan explains in that paragraph is how God everything happens as he says by the special nature of the of the mere presence of God. So God is pure being so God doesn't actually do anything. By the power of his mere being, everything happens as it should happen. Because his, his being is love itself. And because God, God is infinite being, infinite love, by his just being as he actually is, everything is happening as it is meant to happen. So it, it, this paragraph is to help us to understand the real nature of God. We and God is nothing other than us. I mean, God is the real nature of God is our own real nature. So the practical significance is that what we actually are is pure being, unaffected by we, we, our real nature has no, uh, has no, uh, um or It has no uh, liking or wish or desire, it's got no volition, it's got no effort, it is just pure being. That is what we actually are. So he, this paragraph is explaining to us the nature of God, which is our own real nature. But it's very important to understand what Bhagavan says in this paragraph, because, for example, he says elsewhere, but it is God who allots the fruit of our karmas. When we are told that God allots the fruit of our karmas, according to a normal conception we have of God, then we picture someone sitting there scratching his head, thinking, okay, for this action, what what fruit should I give? It's not like that. That is, God does. A, a, it, Every action by every jiva, an appropriate fruit is allotted, and that is given to that jiva, that fruit is given to that jiva to experience at the appropriate time. All this happens not by God sitting there scratching his head or not by God having a supercomputer that calculates all these things, just by his his being the infinite love that he actually is, everything happens as it is meant to happen. So, understanding the nature of God is important to us, firstly, because the nature of God is our own nature. Secondly, because we it will, gives us a deeper understanding of what Bhagavan means when he says, but uh, like he says in the first verse of Upadesa Undhya, um, uh, karma giving fruit is by the... Uh, allotment or ordainment of God. It's God's function. But that doesn't mean God is doing anything. God does everything without doing anything. So that's what he's explaining here. And also, this is significant in the path of surrender. When we are surrendering ourselves to God's will, understanding the nature of God is, of course, of practical significance. So that is Whatever Bhagavan has taught us, all has practical significance. But it's not; we can't always point out, "Oh, this exactly is the practical significance of this." If we, if we understand Bhagavan's teachings as a whole, they all, all his teachings, logically hang together. So we need a coherent understanding of his teachings. To understand any part of them. If we take any part of Bhagavan's teachings in isolation from the rest of his teachings, our understanding of them will be imperfect. For example, if we try to understand the law of karma without understanding this, practice, this paragraph, we will get a distorted understanding of it. So when we study Bhagavan's teachings and think about them, we need to make sense of Each and every part of his teachings in the broader context of the whole teachings, then only we will see, we will understand each individual part of his teachings in in, in the proper context. So all of these teachings have either directly or indirectly, they have a practical significance. So understanding the nature of God has a practical significance because it's the, the nature of God is our own real nature, because um, we cannot understand adequately understand what Bhagavan teaches us about karma without understanding that God, who is the the ordainer of, of the fruits of karma. In other words, God is one who allots the fruit of karma, but He Himself is untouched by karma. He Himself is not when He when Bhagavan says He is, uh, He is uh, uh, not bound or affected in any way by any karma. What does he mean by that? He says even one karma does not adhere to him. That means he's not a doer. He's not doing anything. He's just being. But by his being as he actually is, he does everything or he makes everything happen as it's meant to happen. So all of this is of practical significance. The more we understand about the nature of God, the more we naturally will have love for God. So it it's it's significant in so many ways. But it, most of all, it's significant because it's a key part of uh, of what Bhagavan teaches us about the nature of world, soul, and God. And whatever he teaches us about God is intimately connected with our our own real nature. Because as he says, for example, in verse um, twenty four of U- Upadesha India. Uh, that means by existing nature, God and soul are just one substance, only awareness of adjuncts is different. So when he said by existing nature, God and we are one substance. what is that one substance that one substance is pure being so uh, and that pure being is pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love etc so he, whatever he says about God is applicable to to us because God is what we actually are, so all of these do have um do have a practical significance because, because his teachings as a whole would not make sense without without each individual part of them, because it's like a building. If you try, if you've got a big building and you try and remove some of the bricks and stones, the building is going to collapse. So every 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 stone or brick that forms the building everything has a practical significance because it's all part of one whole structure. So this is a a very uh, essential part of the whole structure of Bhagavan's teachings. I, I hope this is a sufficiently clear and adequate answer
1: to that question. The next question is from uh, Shri Sat. Uh, Shri Sat, you wanted to ask the question?
3: Yeah, thank you. Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, could you speak a little bit about how the... I read the the third chapter of one of the books in which Sri Ramana Maharshi talks about that we don't need to renounce the world. And yet it seems to me that the closer you are resting in sort of truth or source, there is a natural tendency to be more simpler and you don't really want to do complicated things uh, uh, or sort of do a lot of activity. So there seems to be a natural reduction in action. Um, And when there is a lot of activity, then you realize that, You, you sort of can get entangled again in the, in the karma a little bit. Okay. So Um, there's a, there's a, there is some form of a balance or there's no balance, but there's some sort of like, almost like forgetting and then remembering and then returning that seems to be happening. And I just wonder what would be his perspective on, on sort of living with the remembrance.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, firstly, in which book is it said, Bhagavan said, renunciation of the world is not necessary?
3: Uh, It was a book called The Teachings of Ramana Maharshi, Arthur Osborne, one of the Q&A. Okay.
0: Okay. Questions and answers. That is, all these questions and answers, we cannot take them as the core teachings of Bhagavan because... When Bhagavan answers questions, he answers questions according to the. He gives a, the suitable answer for the person who is asking the question. In one place, in talks, um, uh, Swami Yogananda, that Swami who went to America and started the Self Realization Fellowship and wrote a book, autobiography of Yogi, he came to Bhagavan, and. When he came to Bhagavan, he asked Bhagavan, what instructions are to be given for the uplift of the masses? And Bhagavan simply says, instructions cannot be given en masse. Teaching needs to be according to the taught. So when Bhagavan answers questions, he gives the appropriate answer to suit the the perspective from which the questioner is asking the question. So not everything that Bhagavan said is his pure teachings. Mm. That's one thing. Secondly, the people who recorded these, they, it wasn't recorded by a tape recorder or anything. Bhagavan was speaking in Tamil. They listened to what he said, understood something, and later they recorded it in English. So that the process of translation, that the process of how much they actually understood, correctly understood what he was saying, and how much they remembered, they cannot remember more than they understood. So it's first limited by their understanding. Secondly, it's limited by their memory. And thirdly, it's limited by the fact that instead of recording in the language in which he spoke, they record in another language. So these are not accurate recordings of Bhagavan's teaching. Mm-hmm. And they even if they were accurate recordings, they wouldn't necessarily be representative of his core teachings, because they're teachings he gave according to the taught. Oh.
3: So from uh, a perspective but, of the core teachings, how would yeah, we how Okay,
0: would we... so but let me clarify this thing because it's very important because people have misunderstood this. I think Osborne wrote somewhere, but Bhagavan was opposed to External renunciation. That is a misunderstanding. What Bhagavan actually said is the outward mode of life is determined by prarabdha, by destiny. So if it is your destiny to be a sannyasi, you will be a sannyasi. If it's your destiny to be a grahasta, a householder, having a family, you will be a grahasta. If it's your destiny to have 10 children and have to work 18 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you will have to do so. This is all according to destiny. But Bhagavan said, destiny affects only the outward turn mind. Destiny can never prevent us turning our mind within. So it doesn't matter from a spiritual point of view whether we happen to be a sannyasi or what is our outward mode of life, because Actually, according to Bhagavan's teachings, renunciation is absolutely ines- essential. Oh, Bhagavan's path is what? It's the path of self-surrender. Self-surrender means self-renunciation. We are renouncing everything that we now take to be ourself. And when we renounce this ourself, that means renounce ego, we renounce everything. Mm. So, for example, in verse 26 of Uludunapnu, Bhagavan says, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. What's he mean by that? Why does he say if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence? Everything here means all phenomena, the whole world, body, everything, all phenomena of all kinds, mind, everything. It all comes into existence only when we rise as ego. Why is that? Because all these objects of phenomena exist only in the view of ourselves as ego. So they seem to exist only when we rise as ego. When we do not rise as ego, they do not exist at all. In sleep, there's no body, no world, no mind, no thoughts, no feelings, no nothing. There is just pure being and pure awareness of pure being. So all phenomena, what you mean by everything, there is all phenomena come into existence only when ego comes into existence, because they all exist only in the view of ego. So when ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. None of these phenomena exist except in the view of ego, is the implication. Therefore, ego itself is everything. Why does it say ego itself is everything? Because we as ego are seeing ourselves as all this. That is, when we when when we dream, we the dreaming mind. Are seeing ourself as the whole dream world. Likewise now, we as ego are seeing ourself as all of this. So none of this has any existence independent of ego. That is, other things seem to exist only in the view of ego. So they borrow their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. So ultimately everything is just ego. Ego itself is what appears as all this. Then he says in the final sentence of that verse, therefore, investigating what it, what this is, what this is means what this ego is, is giving up everything. Why does he say that? Because if we... As he clarified in the previous sentence, if we investigate this ego, so long as we're attending to other things, ego rises, stands, flourishes, dances around, does all its mischief. But if instead of attending to anything other than ourselves, we turn our attention back within, ego subsides and dissolves back into its source. Or as he puts it there, ego takes flight, it runs away. So we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. So long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we seem to be ego. But if we turn our attention back within to see who am I, this ego, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So we merge back into our source. That is, we who had risen as ego, thereby merge back into its source. So by investigating what this ego is, we bring about the, the dissolution of ego. When ego dissolves, everything else dissolves, because everything exists only in the view of ego. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist, as he said earlier in the same verse. So, investigating what we are is giving up everything. So, if we say, oh, Bhagavan didn't say you have to give up anything, then you're saying, Bhagavan didn't say you have to investigate yourself. Clearly, Bhagavan did say, Bhagavan's whole teaching is about the need for us to investigate ourselves. And by investigating ourselves, we are thereby giving up everything. So, but Bhagavan is not concerned about this outward renunciation. What is the use of shaving your head or growing a long beard and changing the color of your cloth and changing your name? The change that is required is not this external change, this bodily change, it is a change in our outward going attention needs to go back within. That is the true renunciation. So, many of Bhagavan's devotees were sannyasis, because it was their destiny to be sannyasis. Many of them were householders, that's because it's their destiny to be householders. what the outward mode of life is given according to prarabdha. That is not where spirituality lies. The spiritual path is an inward path. It's the path of nivriti, of withdrawing back within. So it doesn't matter if we're really intent on following this path, it doesn't matter whether we outwardly happen to be a sannyasi or happen to be a a family person with 10 children. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is the love we have to turn within. And to the extent to which we have love to turn within, we thereby renounce everything else. Is that a clear answer to your question?
3: Yeah, that's very, very helpful, Michael. Just to May I ask just to clarify? Yes. Yes. Very practically, I've noticed that it's easier to be turned within say when I'm in the middle of the woods than if I am walking in Oxford Street. right? Right? So while it appears that there is a predestined unfolding of the day, somehow to me it feels like because I have a desire to be turning inwards and inquiring, I make such choices which allow me to have that condition, like with more silence, with more nature, and that's what sort of confuses me: if there is a destiny or if there is a choice. So I, I keep.
0: Okay. Well, Does that make first, sense? Firstly, firstly, we need to understand the obstacles to turning within are not coming from the external world. Bhagavan sometimes used to say, if you cannot attend to yourself in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to attend to yourself even if you're sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. Because the obstacle isn't in the external circumstance. The obstacle is within us. It's our own vishayabhasanas. So, yes, if you're walking down Oxford Street, there are so many shops and so many glittery things that may be distracting your attention. But, even if you're walking in a nice, quiet woods, there'll be a the bird song, there'll be so many things that can distract your attention. So it's not to do with the external world. it's to do with whether we have a liking to turn within or not. If you have a liking to turn within, you will, when you're walking down Oxford street, you will not be you'll be least bothered by all these shops and all the things that are this temptations of the world because it Doesn't concern you because your only interest is in turning within, so it has nothing to do with the external circumstances. Whatever external circumstances we are given at each moment is the most conducive circumstances to us to turn within.
3: Mm, So that's beautiful. I love that line. Thank you. That's very helpful. We
0: shouldn't. So long as we think, but the problem lies outside. Oh, my present circumstances is what is stopping me going within. Therefore, I should renounce my family, I should renounce my job, I should go and live in a cave in the Himalayas, I should become a hermit, I should do this, I should do that. That is still the mind going outwards. You're still looking for some solution to your problems outside. If I become a hermit in the Himalayas, then I will be able to um, go within. No, you will not. <laughs> because so long as you believe that your going within depends on external circumstances, your mind is still going outwards. So we need to, we need to understand we can go within in any circumstances whatsoever, provided we have the love for it. And if we don't have the love for it, there's no use in going and living in a cave in the Himalayas. Bhagavan used to tell the story, to illustrate this, Bhagavan used to tell the story, the Kopin Samsara story. Uh, that is, there was a sadhu. He was a very, very simple sadhu, and he wanted to live his life as simply as possible. So he, he had one begging bowl and one loincloth. But pretty often he needs to wash his loan cloth, so he used to he he when he was um, when he went out of his little cave or mandapam or wherever he was living, he would wear his copine and go out, and then he would come back and when no one is washing watching, he'll wash his copine, and he'll hang it up, and he'll go to bed. One morning he woke up and he found a rat had chewed on his cop- his one copine. So this was a big problem for him because this copine is the only copine he has. And he, he's such a, a dedicated renunciate. He doesn't want to have more than one copine. So he put on this tattered copine, but he thought, I must find a solution. Because if, if, uh, if my copine is eaten by a rat, I can't go around naked. I can't go begging my food. So in order to go begging my food, I have to wear my copine. And in order to wear my copine, I have to wash it regularly and I have to dry it. So I have to protect it from the rat. So, the solution would be, I need a cat. So he got, he, he got a cat, in order to protect his copine from the rat. But having got a cat, he then needs sufficient to keep the cat there, the cat was going to run away. The cat, the cat catches the rat, he's going to then go away and search for other rats. So that he needs to find some way of keeping the cat there. So for keeping the cat there, he needs to give the cat milk. So in order to have milk for the cat, then what does he need? He needs a cow. So he then got himself a cow. He got a cow to give milk for the cat, to protect his coping from the rat. So Bhagavan told, told this story in a very humorous way. But that is, if we think but it's external circumstances that we depend upon, even having a single coping will become a, uh, a copine. mean for those who don't know it's a loincloth, but uh, like Bhagavan B- wore a loincloth. If even the single coping will become a big samsara for us if we think that our renunciation depends upon these external things.
3: Thank you, Michael. That's very helpful. Yes. Beautiful. Thanks.
1: Next question is, uh, would you say it's advisable to constantly remind the mind, for example, okay, now I'm going to give the body a cup of coffee? (laughs) Who
0: is the I who is going to give the body a cup of coffee? That I is the I that identifies itself as that body of mind. So these sort of things, We have to we have to be realistic with ourselves. Now we experience this body and mind as I. That is the problem. So merely telling merely the, the mind telling itself, now I'm going to let the body ha- give itself a cup of coffee. How does that help us? We need to, Our aim is to separate ourselves from both body and mind. And the only way to separate ourselves from body and mind is to hold on to our own being. The body and mind are not holding us. We are holding them. It's we who say, the the body doesn't say, I am a body, the mind doesn't say, I am a mind. It is we as ego who say, I am this body, I am this mind, I am doing this, I am thinking that, I am saying this. It it is ego that is, that is the very nature of ego is said to be Abhimanam. Abhimanam means, identification and attachment. So it's the very nature of ego to identify itself as I am this body and and to be attached to this body. So we in order to separate ourselves from this body and mind, but we now mistake ourselves to be we can't, by any amount of trickery, of, uh, of um, imagining that we are something separate from the body and mind, and that we are giving the mind, we are asking the mind to give the body permission to give itself a cup of coffee. That is, this is all mental. This is all in the realm of mind and imagination. We need to actually separate ourselves from this body and mind. So how can we separate ourselves? We are are linked to this body or mind or attached to this body or mind only because we allow our attention to go outwards and grasp this body or mind as I. If we want to give up this identification with the body or mind, we need to go within by holding on to our own being. Because this body and mind are not holding us, if instead of holding on to this body of mind, if we try to hold on to our own being, uh, to our mere being, to the extent to which we hold on to our being, we will let go of other things. And the body of mind will automatically drop off to the extent to which we don't hold them. So if we hold our own being, the body of mind will drop off. The body and mind drop off every night when we fall asleep, because we're too tired to continue grasping them as ourselves. But that's only a temporary solution. We want to. Why do we? What is the? What is it that causes us to identify this body and mind as I? It is ego. Our rising as ego, because the very nature of ego is to grasp a body and mind as I. So, in sleep, ego. Uh, subsides, because we're too tired to continue projecting all this uh, drama. Um, But because ego isn't thereby destroyed, it pops up again in the morning and behold, we go through the same thing day in, day in, day out. So ego is the root problem. How can we cut this root? The nature, very nature of ego is to identify itself as a body and mind. In other words, to grasp a body and mind as I. So in th- we as ego, whose nature is to grasp a body and mind as I, we need to try to grasp our own being. Our own being is completely independent of this my- body and mind, because body and mind disappear in sleep, but we Remain. We exist. We are, and we're aware of our existence. So, by holding on to our existence, we thereby let go of this body and mind, and the body and mind drop off because they're no. We're no longer holding them because they can't hold us. It's we who hold them. So, the more we hold on to our being, the more we thereby subside back into our being. And if we hold on to our being firmly enough, we will sink down to the very depth of our being. And lose ourselves there. That is, we we as ego will merge back into our own reality, the pure such it that we actually are. And that is how the annihilation of ego is brought about, because ego is a false awareness of ourselves. As ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. When we turn our attention within, we thereby come to if we turn our attention within keenly enough. We our attention is withdrawn from all other things. All other things withdraw, drop off, and eventually we are aware of our self alone. That state in which we are aware of our self alone is the state of pure awareness. As soon as we experience ourself as pure awareness, ego is thereby destroyed because ego is the false awareness "I am this body." When we re- when we experience ourselves as I am just I. I am I, as Bhagavan put it. The false identification, I am this body, is destroyed forever. So that is the way to to, to, to separate ourselves from body and mind. Whatever else we try and do is ultimately futile. This is the only means. This is true self-surrender. Only by holding on to our own being and thereby subsiding back into our being, are we surrendering this false self called ego, whose very nature is to grasp a body and mind as itself? Is that a sufficiently clear answer to that question?
1: I guess it is. (laughs) Um, The next question is, uh, it is said that whatever we are destined to experience, that we will have to experience. If we are anxious, depressed, etc., is that destined and hence unavoidable? Or is it only the physical experiences that are predestined, but the mental experience is not predestined, but in our control?
0: It is very difficult for us to separate these things. That is, what we are given to experience is is destined. How we respond to what is given to ex- to uh, we are given to experience that that is dependent on our will. For example, supposing it's our destiny to be always poor to be always out of work, to be always struggling to pay the bills and everything. That could lead to a state of depression, but we can't say the depression is caused by the poverty. Poverty is a fact, because this, another person could be in exactly the same position, but clearly accept, okay, it's Bhagavan's will, it's God's will, but I should always be poor. Fine, doesn't matter. So we we can't draw the line between where something is given to us to experience, and where it is how we experience it. That that is there's two things: what we what we experience and how we experience it. The line between these two is something we cannot we cannot. We cannot clearly divide the line between these two. But what is important to understand, that is one very, very important teaching Bhagavan gave us, is that destiny affects only the outward term mind. So if we want to be free from the effects of destiny, the only solution is to turn our mind within. So supposing it is our destiny to be depressed, I mean, we can't say to what extent it's destiny and to what extent it's um, our our response, but supposing it's our destiny to be depressed, to suffer from mental illness or whatever, we can separate ourselves from that by turning within. So we always have this freedom to turn within. So let us not let us not try and break our head, trying to work out whether this is destiny or whether it's caused by my will or whatever. That's unnecessary. That is not what Bhagavan taught us the law of karma for. He taught us that is we always need to understand Bhagavan's teachings in the context of his central teaching. His central teaching is that we should turn within and know ourselves as we actually are. So the law of karma, as taught by Bhagavan, why he taught this is to help us to turn within. It's not to make us think about. Well, is this? How do I know whether this is, uh, this is according to destiny, according to my will? We shouldn't be concerned about these things. All we should be concerned about is investigating who am I. Because otherwise, this, if we allow it to this law of karma can give rise to endless questions, but if we allow these questions to rise in our mind, that means we haven't understood the purpose for which Bhagavan has taught this. Why Bhagavan taught that whatever is destined to happen, it's going to happen, whatever is destined, not destined to happen is not going to happen, in order to make us understand that we need not be concerned about our external life in this world. Whatever is destined to happen, it's going to happen anyway. Whatever is not destined to happen, it's not going to happen. So we need not be concerned about this, all, this external world. We can surrender the whole burden to Bhagavan. Let Bhagavan give me whatever priority he wants to give me. Uh, that's no concern of mine. My only concern is to turn within and thereby surrender myself to Him. That should be our attitude. Otherwise, if we allow our mind to raise, to, to raise such questions about, um, about the trying to um, uh, distinguish where lies, where where lies the boundary of destiny, where lies the boundary of our will, that is, we that is. And that is anya We're investigating something other than ourselves. We need to be investigating ourself alone. So what what Bhagavan taught us about the this, um, the, the law of karma is to help us to practice self investigation and self surrender. If we if if we don't understand that, if we allow our mind to continue raising. Um, questions about these things, it's endless. And there's no point in it. What does it matter? What does it matter? All that matters is that we turn our attention within. But when taught us this law of karma to make us understand that we need not be concerned about our outward life, because that's already taken care of. It's already... What we are destined to experience, we will experience. What we are not destined to experience, we will not experience. So there's no point in trying to seek this or that in this world. The only thing worth seeking is the clarity of awareness of our own real nature by turning within more and more and more, and thereby surrendering ourselves completely. I hope that is... uh, a useful answer to that question. Not all questions can be adequately answered. Not all questions need to be adequately answered. We should should understand what is important and allow our mind to dwell on what is important, not in what is unimportant. Bhagavan taught us the law of karma to make us to understand, but we need not think about karma. It will all take care of itself.
1: The next question is, uh, in life, I have met people who need to take certain medications because of illness of the body and mind for example, strong painkillers, sedatives, antidepressants, medications for mental illness and similar drugs. They cannot function without such medications, and yet they often want to be free from suffering, seek relief. They are often addicted to medications because they need them. This is becoming a huge specialty. Uh, This is becoming huge, especially in the West. Is it possible for such people who need medication to attain self-realization or God?
0: Of course it is, because that is, diseases of body and mind come according to destiny. The medicines for these diseases also come according to destiny. We are not this body and mind. All problems arise because we identify ourselves with this body and mind. Yes, when this body is born, it inevitably... Sooner or later, well, some people live the whole life without getting any major illness, but most of us undergo illness of some form or another, either physical illness or mental illness. And we happen to live in a day and age when there are all sorts of sophisticated um, treatments and medicines and everything. Of course, these medicines don't solve all the problems, but it's we we, we are fortunate to live in an age where at least uh, medical science is developed to the extent it's developed. Of course, it's not perfect. It will never be perfect. But um, so if if a disease comes to us, whether to our body or to our mind, and if there's an appropriate medicine for that, no wrong in taking that medicine. But what is none of these medicines are going to solve the root problem, which is our identification with this body and mind. So, if we want to be free from the identification with this body and mind, the only medicine is this medicine of self-investigation and self-surrender. So, just because yes, there are certain people they have certain mental conditions for which they need to take certain um, certain drugs, but that doesn't stop them turning their attention within. They still are aware I am. So, if I, I have heard certain um, certain um, would-be gurus who tell people. In, in fact, I won't mention his name, but there's a very well-known guru nowadays who apparently says, "But if you if you take any psychiatric drugs, any drugs for mental illness, you cannot develop a soul, and so there's no hope of salvation." This is absolute nonsense. Firstly, we are not here to develop a soul. It's got nothing to do with developing a soul. And these medicines affect the body and mind. They do not affect what we actually are. So in this spiritual path, we are trying to hold on to our being, to what we actually are, to I am. Whether we are taking psychiatric drugs or not, we are always aware I am. We're aware I am in the waking state, we're aware I am in the dream state, we're aware I am in sleep state. So how, mind cannot affect, cannot have any impact on this fundamental awareness I am. Because the fundamental awareness I am, as Bhagavan said, it's like the screen in the cinema. The various states of body and mind are like pictures on the screen. So, if we want if we're very interested in the pictures in the screen, we, we will ignore the screen and look only at the pictures. But we are always free to ignore the pictures and to be content only with the screen. because even when the pictures are appearing on the screen, it's still the screen we're looking at. so if we we need to go beneath the surface of this body or mind to what underlies it, which is our own being. So, if it's necessary to take um, drugs for physical illness or for mental illness, by all means take the drugs, but continue the practice of self-investigation and self-surrender. Take it just like the disease has come according to destiny. According to the the medicines also come according to destiny. So we that should be our attitude towards these things. We shouldn't be concerned about these things. Our only concern should be to investigate who am I and thereby to surrender ourselves completely. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question.
1: Just as an addition to that question, Michael, I think it would be in some people's minds that, that I think that everybody would be receptive to what you just said. Uh, However, would it be the case that, um, if you like, a more mature mind, a quieter mind, uh, one which is able to be more attentive, uh, for example, in mental illness, it's very often difficult for people to to have control over their attention or yes. to be able to attend and so on. So, uh, and I think this is really what bothers people uh, in a way. And then when they take drugs and so on, uh, that can again affect uh, the attentiveness. So while it is possible, is it more difficult? Uh, and well, are there any pointers which might yeah. help uh, to focus the attention more closely? One,
0: one thing Bhagavan has said in Nana is of all the uh, nyamas, of all the restrictions, the the best of all restrictions is mitta sattvika ahara nyama. That is the restriction of taking moderate amounts of sattvic food. But the word he uses for food is ahara. Ahara means what is taken in. And whatever we take into our body has an effect. If you drink alcohol, it has an effect on the body. Even if you drink tea or coffee, it has a certain effect on the body and mind. Um, uh, if you smoke, it has an effect on the body and mind. So the pollution that surrounds us in the, in modern cities, that also has an effect. So, So many things have an effect. So these drugs will also have an effect. So as far as possible, we should try to limit our intake of substances to what is Moderate moderate quantities of more satvic food. So, we shouldn't take psychiatric drugs unnecessarily. But there are certain psychiatric conditions that people have. They cannot function normally without taking those drugs. So, it's better to take the drugs and to keep the mind in a certain equilibrium and to try to turn within. It's maybe not ideal, but it's better that it's. There are many uh, uh, psychiatric conditions where people are better off taking the medicines for not taking the medicines, in which case it's better to take the medicines. And it's also very dangerous, like some of these people, some of these would-be spiritual gurus who say, oh, give up all your psychiatric medicine. That's very dangerous because sometimes these medicines, if you've been taking for a while, if you suddenly stop, it can have a very adverse effect. So, we need to be sensible about these things. If it is necessary, if if there's no option, if there's no other reasonable option, it's better to take the medicine than not to take them. But don't take them unnecessarily. So, it's ultimately, if we're in a situation where we're suffering from a physical ailment or a mental ailment, um, and... Certain medicines are are offered to us, we have to choose our use our judgment. So we may not always judge correctly. So we should rely on Bhagavan to guide us properly. So if Bhagavan if if we happen to have a, a psychiatric illness and we are offered a drug that helps us. We should take it that Bhagavan is offering us that drug, and use that calmness of mind that is uh, that that um, that drug helps us to maintain to turn within. That that's all we can say. I mean, it, it it's foolish people who 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 say, "Oh, you 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 need not do take any psychiatric drugs." It, for many of us, we don't we get through life without needing these drugs. But for some people, for certain conditions, where certain medicines are, can be very helpful. So we we can't generalize about these things. We just need to be sensible as far as possible. And, of course, we our judgment may not always be correct, so ultimately we depend upon Bhagavan to guide us. Yes, sometimes if you take certain drugs, it may seem to make it more difficult to turn within. But ultimately, it's, it's not the external conditions that, are ma- that matter, the conditions of the body and mind. Ultimately, it depends upon how much love we have to turn within. So whatever be the condition of our body and mind, we should be doing our best to practice self-investigation and self-surrender in order to cultivate more and more love, to turn within, and surrender ourselves to Bhagavan. That's all we can say.
1: And This is the last question which I have here. Uh, Which of these two I am descriptions is more accurate? The first is, I am, without, with, I am without any adjunct. That is, I am without any content. Or the second description, I am which includes the ego as part of itself from its own svatantra, that is its own freedom, and icha is a desire to enjoy transcendence, but is not affected by it at all.
0: I am is what is never affected by anything. For well, the pure I, there are no adjuncts. Adjuncts exist only for ego. Um, the first description is true. That is, that which that which is devoid of adjuncts is the pure I am. So long as I am is to any extent mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it it is it is ego. Um, so the, uh, only. I, devoid of adjuncts, is the pure I am. That is what we actually are. To say that I am includes ego is a bit… No, I am does not include ego. I am is pure being. In the view of the pure being, pure awareness that we actually are, there is no ego, no body, no world, nothing. So it can only be from the perspective of ego, but we can say, I am, is, ego is included in I am. Um, but ego's outlook is an ignorant outlook. Our aim is, rather than concerning ourselves with uh, descriptions, our aim is to know and to be what we actually are. What we actually are is the pure eye devoid of adjuncts. So our aim is just to hold on to that pure I, that uh, that fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am, we, to the extent to which we hold on to that, the adjuncts will drop off, and eventually the pure I alone will remain. In other words, we as ego will merge back into, our, into the pure I am, and the pure I am will remain as it always is. what is most important is putting this into practice. Otherwise, these questions or um, this mental activity will go on for all time. But the whole aim of Bhagavan's teachings, yes, we need to think carefully about Bhagavan's teachings. We need to understand it correctly. But the purpose of understanding it correctly, the purpose of thinking deeply about what Bhagavan has taught us is to encourage us and enable us to turn within to find out what we actually are. So the whole purpose of Bhagavan's teachings is the practice, the practice of self-investigation and self-surrender. Otherwise, we can go on asking questions for all eternity. There's no end to it. So we need to understand which questions are useful to ask and limit ourselves to those questions. Ultimately, all questions will come back to the one fundamental question: Who am I? And that question cannot be answered in words. It cannot be answered. Cannot be answered by words. It cannot be answered by thoughts. It can be answered only by turning our attention within and merging back into our source. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. So it's good to ask questions, but we should be sure that the questions we are asking are actually useful questions. They're useful to the extent to which they help us. The answer to those questions help us determine within.
1: How can we distinguish in the course of self-attention that we are attending to pure consciousness, and not confuse it with the life force or prana which animates the body, or are they one and the same?
0: No, but the prana or life force that animates the body is one of the five sheaves, it's an adjunct. Um, the, the pure awareness I am is what is fundamental, so um, the whole that is, the more we attend to I am, the more we gain the clarity to distinguish, to, to discern our being uh, in isolation or in separation from all these adjuncts. Now, we, when we are facing outwards, we are fully identified with this body and mind and prana and everything. This whole bundle of five sheaths is what we experience as ourselves. But the more we turn within, the more we begin to recognize the, that our being is something distinct, our, our, This fundamental awareness I am is something distinct from all these adjuncts. So we need to persevere in going within more and more and more the only way to get more and more clarity on this path is to go deeper and deeper in following this path. But clarity all lies within us. So we can find that clarity only by going within. So the more we go within, the more we will begin to see clearly that what we actually are is something distinct from this body and mind and prana and all these, uh, these adjuncts. The prana is the life force. is something that is ever active. The breathing is active. The heartbeat is active. The digestion is active. That is prana refers to all the physiological processes happening in the body. So it's constantly the, the processes of life are constant activity. Whereas I am is just pure being. So activity is is going on, but the. But all these physiological processes, they occur only in the waking and dream state. In sleep, there's no body, no prana, no mind, no world, nothing. There is just pure being. So our aim is to be as we were in sleep, to be aware of nothing other than ourselves. And we can be aware of nothing other than ourselves here and now in this waking state, by only by turning our attention more and more within, and turning our attention back towards ourself alone, and thereby withdrawing it from all other things. So all these things will become clear, all these questions we may ask, they will all be answered to the extent to which we go within. So, what is most important in Bhagavan's path is the practice. Because only from the, we can get a certain degree of clarity by reading Bhagavan's works and by thinking carefully about them. But the clarity we can get by this, this reading his works is called sravana. Thinking carefully about them, trying to make sense of them, trying to yeah, you know, trying to make sense of them, trying to understand them all coherently and comprehensively, that's called manana. Sravana manana are necessary because without sravana manana, we will not even begin to understand what is it we should do. But sravana manana are useful only to the extent to which they motivate us to put it into practice. So it's the practice that is most important. And the real clarity comes not Merely from it cannot come just from sravana manana, the real clarity comes from within. Because when we are turning our attention within to our own being, our being is the light of pure awareness, so that is the light that illumines the mind, thereby enabling the mind to know all other things. So, this is the original light, the source of all light. So, both more we turn within, the more we attend to our own being, the more our mind is being clarified and purified. So it will become clearer and clearer to us to the extent to which we put it into practice. That is why practice is all important. All this talk about Bhagavan's teachings, it can all be useful to the extent to which it helps us in the practice. But mere me talking about these things, merely asking questions, answering questions, this is not Bhagavan's path. And um, this, this can be supplementary, this can be, be a support to us in following this path, but the path is turning within and knowing who am I, and thereby surrendering this, uh, this ego, the false identification, I am this person. So that is what is most important.
1: Next question is As Bhagawan says in Upadesh Undiyar, there is no I in deep sleep, there is only that. Why didn't Bhagawan ask us to inquire about ourselves as that, where that is not an adjunct? Uh, We need to understand, that is, this is where
0: we need to read Bhagavan very carefully. What he says in that verse is verse 21 of Upadesh Undiyar. What he says in that verse is, he refers to what he said in the previous verse. In the previous verse he says, but when I dies, when ego dies, the one, one thing will shine forth as I am I. That is the infinite whole. Referring to that, he says, that is always the true import of the word I. He says, the word he used for always is nālam. Nālam literally means daily, but it, in, the, in effect there it means eternally. So he's, when he says uh, namad, um, uh, sleep in sleep which is devoid of I, the I he's referring to there is ego. But though I is absent in sleep, I alone remain in sleep. Because he says, because of the absence of our non-existence. So what he's saying there is, though I in the sense of ego is absent in sleep, we do not cease to exist in sleep. So we are the real import of the word, I. So I exist in sleep without I. What does that mean? That means the pure eye alone remains in sleep. The eye that is mixed and conflated with adjunct, that is what is absent in sleep. That is ego. So we, this is where we need to read Bhagavan very carefully to make sense of what he's saying. Because how can he say, but in sleep, I is absent, but we are present? Does that mean we're something other than I? No, we, the, we are present as the pure eye. What is absent in sleep is the adjunct-conflated I, namely ego. The so I is eternal, the real I. That's why he says this is the real, the, this is always, in other words, eternally the true import of the word I. What the word I actually refers to is only the pure I, but alone, it, but alone is what remains in sleep. Now in waking and dream, this pure eye seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts. That which is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, that eye that is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, is therefore called ego. That is what is absent in sleep, not the pure eye. The pure eye is ever-present because the pure eye alone is what actually exists. So, Bhagavan expresses his teachings in a very deep and subtle way because we are, he he wants us to think about it he wants us to think carefully about it. how can he say that uh that our non-existence is absent in sleep in other words we exist in sleep but there's but I is not there. What does he mean by that because we are definitely I so how can we exist in sleep and without I? It means we exist as the pure eye without the impure eye, namely ego, the adjunct conflated eye. This is where mere sravana is not sufficient. We need to do some manana. We need to make sense of what Bhagavan is saying. So the manana is to make sense of it, and the nidityasana is to put it into practice. Okay, if I alone exist in sleep, then who am I? We need to turn our attention back within to investigate this, this fundamental I, this pure I that exists throughout all the three states, unaffected by the appearance of waking, dream, and sleep. Are there any more questions, Shalini?
1: There aren't any more questions, Michael.
0: Okay. So, um, so, we come to silence. I think we've come to that silence. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. But <laughs> His teachings are about the real silence. Should the silence we? that is present even when the mind is, um, uh, is restlessly active. The silence of pure being. That is what we have to all come to eventually.